Section 77 of 93 by Victor Hugo, translated by Aline Delano. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 3, Book 7, Chapter 6, Still the Sun Rises. It was not long before day began to dawn on the horizon, and together with the day there sprang to light upon the plateau of the Tourg, above the forest of Fougere, a strange, stationary, and wonderful object, unfamiliar to the birds of heaven. It had been placed there during the night, set up rather than built. From a distance, against the horizon, it presented a profile composed of straight and rigid lines, resembling a Hebrew letter, or one of those Egyptian hieroglyphics which formed part of the alphabet of the ancient enigma. The first thought that entered the mind at the sight of this object was its uselessness. There it stood among the blossoming heather. Then came the question, could it be used, and for what purpose? Then came a shudder. It was a sort of trestle work supported by four posts. At one end were two long upright beams, united at the top by a crossbeam, from which hung a triangle that looked black against the pale blue of the morning sky. At the other end of this trestle stood a ladder. Between these two beams, beneath the triangle, could be distinguished a sort of panel composed of two movable sections, which, fitting into one another, offered to the eye a round hole about the size of a man's neck. The upper section of the panel ran in a groove, by means of which it could be raised or lowered. For the moment the two semicircles that formed the collar were drawn apart. At the foot of the two pillars supporting the triangle was seen a plank that moved on hinges like a seesaw. Beside the plank stood a long basket, and in front, between the two posts at the end of the staging, a square one. This object was painted red and made entirely of wood except the triangle, which was of iron. One might know that it was built by men, so ugly, sordid, and contemptible did it look, and yet so formidable was it that it might well have been transported hither by genii. This shapeless structure was the guillotine. In front of it, a few paces off, in the ravine, was another monster, La Tourgue, a stone monster, companion piece to the monster of wood. And let us add that after wood and stone have been manipulated by man, they lose something of their original substance taking on a certain similitude to man himself. A building is a dogma. A machine is an idea. The Tourg was that fatal product of the past called in Paris the Bastille, in England the Tower of London, in Germany the Fortress of Spielberg, in Spain the Escurial, in Moscow the Kremlin, and in Rome the Castle of Sant'Angelo. The Tourg was the condensation of fifteen hundred years, the period of the Middle Ages, with its vassalage, its servitude, and its feudality. The guillotine showed forth but one year, ninety-three. But these twelve months were a fitting counterpoise for those fifteen centuries. The Tourg was the personification of monarchy, the guillotine of revolution. A tragic encounter. On the one hand, the debt. On the other, the requirement thereof. All the hopeless entanglement of the Gothic period, the serf, the lord, the slave, the master, the plebeian, the nobility, a complex code with all the ramifications of practice, the coalition of judge and priest, the infinite variety of shackles, fiscal duties, the salt tax, the mortmain, the poll tax, the exception, the prerogatives, the prejudices, the fanaticisms, the royal privilege of bankruptcy, the scepter, the throne, the arbitrary will, the divine right, opposed to that simple thing, a knife. On one side a knot, on the other the axe. For many a year the Tourg had stood alone in this desert, and from its battlements had rained the boiling oil, the burning pitch, and the melted lead. 
There it stood, with its dungeons paved with human bones, its torture chamber alive with memories of its tragic past. For fifteen centuries of savage tranquility its gloomy front had towered above the shades of the forest. It had been the only power in the land, the one thing respected and feared. Its reign had been supreme, without a rival in its wild barbarity, when it suddenly saw rising before it, with an aspect of hostility, a thing, nay, more than a thing, a creature as hideous as itself, the guillotine. Stone seems at times endowed with the sense of sight. A statue observes, a tower watches, the front of a building contemplates. The Turg seemed to be examining the guillotine. It was as if questioning itself, What can this object be? One might fancy it to have sprung from the soil, and so indeed it had. Like a poisonous tree, it had sprouted from a fatal soil, from that soil so plentifully watered by human sweat, by tears and by blood, from the soil wherein men had dug countless graves, tombs, caves, and ambushes, from the same soil wherein had rotted the innumerable victims of every kind of tyranny, from that soil covering so great a multitude of crimes, buried like frightful germs in the depths below, had sprung forth on the appointed day this stranger, this avenging goddess, this fierce sword-bearing instrument. And ninety-three cried out to the old world, Behold me! The guillotine had a right to say to the dungeon, I am thy daughter. And yet at the same time the keep, for these fatal objects live a certain obscure life, recognized its own death warrant. At the sight of this formidable apparition the Turg seemed bewildered. One might have called it terror. The immense mass of granite was both majestic and infamous. That plank with its triangle was still more dreadful. Deposed omnipotence felt a horror of the rising power. It was criminal history studying judicial history. The violence of former days was comparing itself with the violence of the present time. The ancient fortress, both the prison and the dwelling of the lords, where the tortured victims had shrieked aloud. This structure devoted to war and murder, now useless and defenseless, violated, dismantled, discrowned, a pile of stones no better than a heap of cinders, hideous to look upon, magnificent in death, dizzy with the vertigo of those terrible centuries, stood watching the passage of the awful living hour. Yesterday shuddered in the presence of today. The old ferocity beheld and did homage to the new terror, and that which was mere nothingness unclosed its spectral eyes before the terror, and the phantom gazed upon the ghost. Nature is pitiless. She never withholds her flowers, her melodies, her perfumes, her sunbeams from human abominations. She overwhelms man by the contrast between divine beauty and social ugliness. She spares him nothing, neither the wing of butterfly nor song of bird. On the verge of murder, in the act of vengeance or barbarity, she brings him face to face with those holy things. Nowhere can he escape the eternal reproach of universal benevolence and the implacable serenity of the sky. Human law and all its hideous deformity must stand forth naked in the presence of the eternal radiance. Man breaks and crushes, lays waste, destroys. But the summer, the lily, and the star remain ever the same. Never had the fair sky of early dawn seemed lovelier than on that morning. A soft breeze stirred the heather, the mist floated lightly among the branches, the forest of Fougere, suffused with the breath of running brooks, smoked in the dawn like a gigantic censer filled with incense. The blue sky, the snowy clouds, the clear transparency of the streams, the verdure with its harmonious scale of color, from the aquamarine to the emerald, the social groups of trees, 
the grassy glades, the far-reaching plains, all revealed that purity which is nature's eternal precept unto man. In the midst of all this appeared the awful depravity of man. There stood the fortress and the scaffold, war and punishment, the two representatives of this sanguinary epoch and moment, the screech-owl of the gloomy night of the past and the bat of the twilight of the future. In the presence of a world all flowery and fragrant, tender and charming, the glorious sky bathed both the Turg and the guillotine with the light of dawn, as though it said to man, Behold my work and yours. The sun wields a formidable weapon in its light. This spectacle had its spectators. The four thousand men of the expeditionary army were drawn up on the plateau in battle array. They surrounded the guillotine on three sides, forming themselves around it after a geometrical fashion, in the shape of the letter E. The battery placed against the center of the longest line made the notch of the E. The red machine was, if we may so express it, shut in by these three battle fronts, a wall of soldiers, extending in a sort of coil and spreading as far as the edge of the escarpment of the plateau. The fourth side, left open, was the ravine itself, which looked upon the tourg. This formed an oblong square, in the center of which stood the scaffold. The shadow cast upon the grass by the guillotine lessened as the sun rose. The gunners with lighted matches stood by their pieces. A faint blue smoke curled upward from the ravine, the last breath of the dying fire on the bridge. This smoke obscured without veiling the tourg, whose lofty platform overlooked the entire horizon. Only the width of the ravine separated the platform from the guillotine, and voices could easily have been heard between them. The table of the tribunal, and the chair shaded by the tricolored flags, had been conveyed to this platform. The sun rising behind the tourg brought into relief the black mass of the fortress, and upon its summit, seated on the chair of the tribunal, beneath the group of flags, the figure of a man, motionless, his arms crossed upon his breast. This man was Simurdan. He wore, as on the previous evening, his civil delegate's uniform, a hat with the tricolored cockade upon his head, a saber by his side, and pistols in his belt. He was silent. The entire assembly was silent likewise. The soldiers, their eyes downcast, stood at order arms. They touched elbows, but no one spoke. They were thinking vaguely about this war, the numerous battles, the hedged fusillades so valiantly faced, of the hosts of furious peasants scattered by their prowess, the citadels conquered, the engagements won, the victories. And now it seemed as though all this glory returned to their shame. A gloomy expectation oppressed every breast. They could see the executioner walking up and down the platform of the guillotine. The growing light of day deepened until it filled the sky with its majestic presence. Suddenly was heard that muffled sound peculiar to crepe-covered drums. Nearer and nearer came their funereal roll. The ranks opened, and the procession, entering the square, moved towards the scaffold. First came the black drums, then a company of grenadiers with lowered muskets, then a platoon of gendarmes with drawn sabres, then the prisoner, Govan. Govan walked without constraint. Neither hands nor feet were bound. He was in undress uniform and wore his sword. Behind him marched another platoon of gendarmes. The same pensive joy that had lighted his face when he said to Simurdan, I am thinking of the future, still rested upon it. Nothing could be more sublime and touching than this continued smile. When he reached the fatal spot, 
His first glance was turned to the summit of the tower. He disdained the guillotine. He knew that Simordan would feel it his duty to be present at the execution. His eyes sought him on the platform and found him there. Simordan was ghastly pale and cold. Even those who stood nearest heard no sound of his breathing. When he caught sight of Govan, not a quiver passed over his face, and yet he knew that every step brought him nearer to the scaffold. As he advanced, Govan looked at Simordan, and Simordan looked at him. It seemed as though Simordan found support in that glance. Govan reached the foot of the scaffold. He ascended it, followed by the officer in command of the grenadiers. He unbelted his sword and handed it to this officer. Then he loosened his cravat and gave it to the headsman. He was like a vision. Never had he looked more beautiful. His brown locks floated in the wind. At that time they did not cut the hair of those about to be executed. His fair throat reminded one of a woman's. His heroic and commanding expression gave the idea of an archangel. He stood upon the scaffold, lost in reverie. There, too, was a height. Govan stood upon it stately and calm. The sun streamed about him, crowning him as it were with a halo. Still, the prisoner must be bound. Rope in hand, the executioner advanced. At that moment, when the soldiers saw their young leader so near the knife, they could no longer restrain themselves. The hearts of these warriors burst forth. Then was heard a startling sound, the sobs of an entire army. A clamor arose. Mercy! Mercy! Some fell on their knees. Others threw down their muskets, stretching their arms towards the platform where Simordan stood. One grenadier, pointing to the guillotine, cried, Here I am. Will you not take me as a substitute? All repeated frantically, Mercy! 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 The very lions would have been moved or terrified, for the tears of soldiers are terrible. The headsman paused, uncertain what to do. Then a voice, quick and low, and yet in its ominous severity distinctly heard by all, cried from the top of the tower, Execute the law. They recognized the inexorable tone. Simordan had spoken. The army shuddered. The executioner hesitated no longer. He moved forward, holding out the cord. Wait, said Govan, and turning towards Simordan, he waved his free right hand in token of farewell. Then he allowed himself to be bound. When he was tied, he said to the executioner, Pardon, uh, one moment more. Long live the Republic! He cried. He was laid upon the plank. The infamous caller clasped that charming and noble head. The executioner gently lifted his hair, then pressed the spring. The triangle detached itself, gliding first slowly, then rapidly. A frightful blow was heard. At the same instant, another report sounded. The stroke of the axe was answered by a pistol shot. Simordan had just seized one of the pistols that he wore in his belt, and as Govan's head rolled into the basket, Simordan sent a bullet through his own heart. A stream of blood gushed from his mouth, and he fell dead. Thus these twin souls, united in the tragic death, rose together, the shadow of the one blending with the radiance of the other. End of section 77 End of 93 by Victor Hugo Translated by Aline Delano Read for LibriVox.org by Joanna Michael Hoyt